Our scripture reading this afternoon is Psalm 22. The passages can be found on page 9 of your bulletin and will also be projected above. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Heather. Appreciate it. Uh, kids, I mentioned your uh, Trinity Kids bulletin that was in that uh, worship bag. You can grab that now, and there is a spot on there for you to jot down three things that I'm going to mention, and I want you to listen specifically for. So the first is uh, Mother Teresa. 
Uh, secondly, getting sent to voicemail. And then uh, thirdly, feeding quarters into a machine. So Mother Teresa getting sent to voicemail and then feeding quarters into a machine. So let me, uh, let me pray for us as we come to this great psalm together. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word to us. We thank you that it is absolutely true. We thank you that you have given it to us because you love us. And so, Father, we pray this afternoon that your Holy Spirit would work now with your word to accomplish what you desire in us. And, Lord, we pray above all that we would come to see and behold your Son uh, in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, and that we would see all that he has accomplished for us. And we pray this all in his name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, it's been actually just over uh, 25 years since Mother Teresa died. And so uh, one of the really interesting things is that uh, throughout most of her adult life, she was writing letters uh, to her spiritual director. And I know that terminology isn't uh, something we're really accustomed to, but a, a spiritual director is just somebody uh, who helps you see what God is doing in your life. And so part of the way that she interacted with hers was to write these, uh, these letters. And as you imagine, you, you could really open up in these letters and really confide in this person as to what you were really dealing with. And so as you would expect, uh, these letters were, were deeply personal. And, and part of what they did is they, uh, they gave real insight into what her life with God was really like. And so 10 years after she died in 2007, those letters were published. And uh, what, what ended up being surprising to a lot of people is that part of what was included in these letters was her bout with significant depression. And that she had these, these significant times of real darkness. And that was the language that, that she used to describe it as being in, in states of darkness. And so some read this and said, this is actually diagnosable clinical depression that she was dealing with. And, and so as she's describing the, the experience of that darkness, she also talks about in the midst of that, a real sense of God's absence. And so here's some of what she wrote. She said, there is such terrible darkness within me as if everything was dead. It has been like this more or less from the time I started the work. In my heart, there is no faith, no love, no trust. There is so much pain, the pain of longing, the pain of not being wanted. I want God with all the powers of my soul. And yet there between us, there is terrible separation. And so she says she, she continued to try to pray through these dark times. But here's what she said about that. I want to speak, yet nothing comes. I find no words to express the depths of the darkness. There is such a deep loneliness in my heart that I cannot express it. Now, I, I don't know how that lands with you. Um, there were some people who heard this in the media, and, and what they said is, well, what this shows is that she was actually an atheist, and she was just faking it all this time, but she never really had true faith. There were some people that came at her for that. Um, I, I remember hearing about this the first time and, and hearing about her struggles and actually being really encouraged by it. And the reason that I say that is that I think part of what that shows is that even these people that, that, that we understand to be really genuinely pursuing the Lord are those who can deal with these times of real darkness, who can experience um, the, the, the sense of God's absence, uh, and, and that that really does happen. And, and 
Part of why I mention that is that that is exactly what's happening in Psalm 22. It's this psalm of lament, and the the psalmist, it's attributed to David, um, it says he has people who are coming after him all over. He's surrounded by these people, and he's suffering horribly because of it. And worst of all, in the midst of all that, it feels like God is nowhere to be found. And so um, if you've been around the church for a while, it may be that this is a familiar psalm to you. And the reason that it's probably familiar, if it is familiar, is because this is the psalm that Jesus took to his lips as he hung dying on the cross. Some of his very last words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we're gonna talk plenty about how uh, and why Jesus took these words to his lips, but, but here's what we need to not miss. This psalm was written and prayed by somebody long before Jesus was on the scene. It was somebody who was in this deep anguish and was crying out to God over and over again and yet was met with silence. And so that's why Jesus prayed it on the cross. That's why this this psalm has been prayed for centuries by God's people. And this is actually why we need to still pray it today. And so it's been our practice, as I mentioned, in recent years to uh, take the summer and focus on the psalms. And so that's what we're doing this year. We're starting with Psalm 22. It's picking up where we've left off. And we will move through them uh, more or less sequentially uh, through the end of the summer. Uh, There are a whole lot of good reasons to study the Psalms. One of the main ones is this. The Psalms teach us how to pray. What they do is they they, they teach us what real life with God looks like. And I think part of the, the, the unique beauty of the Psalms is that they cover this full spectrum of emotions. Uh, and I think that is especially and particularly important when you have things that are incredibly difficult in your life. Because w- what the Psalms do is that they actually provide a roadmap for what it looks like to engage with God when your life feels like a total train wreck. And so Dan McCartney says this. This is in the front cover of your bulletin if you want to follow along. He says, the Psalms were Jesus' resource in times of suffering. If we're going to suffer in Christ, we ought to respond the way he did, by the Psalms. And the Psalms are apt. No other body of literature in the world so completely runs the range of human feelings. The Psalms are not just expressions of joy, elation, trust, thanks, and hope. They also express anguish, despair, anger, pain, confusion, and sorrow to the dregs. And it's that latter sentence that we get in this psalm. Because what you get in this psalm is the psalmist wrestling with the question, what do you do in the face of soul-crushing anguish? When it feels like God is absent and unresponsive to you. And so what I want to do is highlight three ways that that the psalm answers those questions. So what do we do in the face of our anguish and God's seeming absence? First, we pray our anguish. We pray our anguish. So this is right where the psalm begins. So listen to the questions that that he asks in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So there are are a couple of images here that we get of God in the midst of these desperate questions. One is of God abandoning him. He says, "It, it seems like you are far off and distant from the words of my groaning. He's distant. He's abandoned the psalmist. 
The other image that you get is of God being silent. It says that he is crying out by day and by night, but what it really feels like is that he's shouting into the void. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this where uh, you, you are praying and it starts to feel like you're really just kind of talking to yourself. That's what's happening here. So think about this. He has all of these enemies who are surrounding him. They're coming after him. They're mocking him. Verses 7 and 8, it says. He describes them in uh, verses 12 and 13 as though they are animals attacking him. There are these bulls that are surrounding him and are, are, are biting at him. And then there's a ravening and roaring, roaring lion. That's what this feels like. But here's what's interesting. Uh, like a lot of Psalms, we're not told what the exact circumstances are. Nobody knows uh, the occasion for this psalm, why David wrote it. And, and I think there, there, there's something that, that we need to recognize about this that's actually really helpful, helpful. This is part of the gift of the psalms. It's a gift in that they are specific enough to speak into real circumstances. And at the same time, they're general enough to, to see that they apply in all sorts of different circumstances. Here's the point, though. He is suffering deeply. And he feels like God is nowhere to be found. The time where he feels like he needs the Lord the most is the time when the Lord feels most absent. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the, here's the thing that actually makes this even worse. He knows that God is capable of doing something about it. He knows that this is exactly what God has done for his fathers. When he's talking about his fathers, he's talking about Israel. That's what he says in verses three through five. Look at verse five. He says, to you they cried, and were rescued. But here's the thing, that's not what God is doing for him right now. And I would guess that obviously everybody's circumstances are different, but, but there are some of you who know exactly what this feels like. Where you have prayed and prayed and prayed that God would do something that he would mend the situation, that, that, that he would bring healing to, to something, that he would bring reconciliation in a broken relationship or in a broken family, and the reality is that it has not happened. And if you were brutally honest about it, you would say that it really feels like I am on my own in this situation. There's a part of me that feels like God is intentionally shutting me off and being silent with me. He's not answering me. So if I could put it this way, without being crass, um, it's almost like when you try to call somebody over and over, but they never pick up. <laughs> and then even those times where you do call them and you can tell that it's, you get sent to voicemail immediately, and it's not because they're on the other line, it's because they waited a moment, saw who it was, and sent you to voicemail, right? Um, that's not a great feeling when it's somebody that you love. That's not a good feeling when it's a friend who does that to you. But it is way worse when it feels like that's what God is doing to you. That's where the psalmist is. And there are a couple of things that I think we need to see about these questions. One is that these questions are brutally honest. To the point where you might hear these, these questions and the way that he phrases them and almost feel uncomfortable. Because there's a part of you that, that thinks, I would not be comfortable being this sort of gloves off before the Lord. And there are all kinds of reasons that we feel that way. There, it could be that, that you've grown up in a church where these kinds of questions were, were sort of off limits. 
Um, it could be that, that you have thought about these questions as being a sign of weak faith. And so you've, you've, uh, you've stayed away from them for that reason. Or it could be this. Uh, it could be that it is just really scary to verbalize these sort of questions towards the Lord because to verbalize them makes them that much more real to you. And it forces you to acknowledge that you really do feel like God has abandoned you in this place. There was a, uh, a tweet that, I, this is from a well-known pastor in a massive church years ago who said this, negative thoughts come to every person. The key is don't verbalize them. Be positive or be quiet. The awkward thing about that for this pastor is that that is the exact opposite of what's happening in Psalm 22, right? And it's not like Psalm 22 is unique either. Um, over two-thirds of the Psalms have elements of lament in them. In other words, it, it's not just that, that, that God says it is permissible for you to ask these sort of questions of him. It's actually that he invites you to ask these sort of questions of him. And he shows that over and over in his word. So that's the first thing to notice about these questions. Here's the other. These questions are directed towards God. And here's why that's so important. Because if you've ever experienced something close to this where God feels and seems absent, then the natural temptation that you feel in that moment is to start looking elsewhere. You think like, I am on my own in this place, and so I'm gonna start looking inward and dealing with things by myself. So the last thing that I would think about in that moment is sort of shouting into the void to a God who feels like he's not even there. What I want you to see is that that is not what the psalmist does. Part of what he does is he takes all of this anguish, all of this sense of God being absent and silent, and he takes it to the Lord. And he pours out his heart before him. And it might be that one of the reasons that you feel some apprehension about talking to the Lord like this is because it feels like it would show a lack of faith. I mentioned that earlier. The opposite is actually true. To take all of these questions to the Lord is in some sense a, the deepest act of faith because it's going to the Lord who is not responding to you and it's saying, I know who you are. I know who you've revealed yourself to be and so I'm calling you to do that, to be who you say that you are in your word. And so that's what the Psalms invite you to do. That's what they, they call you to do in the midst of your anguish. It's an invitation to be completely honest before God. Rather than, than praying and saying the things that you feel like is more appropriate, um, Eugene Peterson has this uh, quote where he, he describes those things that we think we should say as verbal poses that we think might please God. God's not interested in that. He's interested in you coming to him in full honesty. So that's the first thing we do in the face of our anguish is to pray it to the Lord. That's what David does. This is how the psalm begins. Here's the thing though. Uh, even as he does that, things actually get worse before they get better. And so secondly, in the face of our anguish, we pray our confusion. We pray our confusion. So why do I use that word? Well, because in the middle of the section, you get David, uh, who on the one hand is trying to reconcile who he's experienced and known God to be in the past with who he is experiencing him to be right now. And, and, and that feels incredibly disorienting and confusing to him. 
So if you look back to, to verses six through eight, he says these things. He says, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned, despised, and mocked. He says he feels abandoned here. But on the other hand, verse nine, he says, I know who you've been to me in the past. You took me from my mother's womb. You, you made me trust you from the very earliest days of my life. He says, you've been my God. He says, my, over and over again for, for all these years. And yet, it sure doesn't feel like you're doing anything for me right now. And so what he does is for the next section of the psalm is unload with this long description of his suffering. We've already mentioned the enemies that are surrounding him, but if you, you skip forward there to verses 14 and 15, he starts talking about how he feels this in his body. He says he's weak, and um, this is one of those places in the psalms where there are these uh, descriptions of things that, that might not, you might not know exactly what it means, but at the same time, you know exactly what it feels like. And that's what you get here, where he says, he's poured out like water. All his bones are out of joint. His heart is melted like wax. In other words, he is coming apart. He is undone by this. And worst of all, God seems like he's the one who's even allowing it and doing it in some cases. Verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. In, uh, in Dan McCartney's book on suffering, the one that I quoted from earlier, um, he mentions the way a, a friend had experienced this kind of suffering. Here's how he describes it. He says, I feel like I'm inside a machine that is grinding me to bits while God is standing there feeding quarters into the machine to keep it going. That is a brutal place to be. It's, it's to live in this tension between how you have experienced God in the past and who you know him to be with now the way that you are experiencing, experiencing him right now. And so the, the, the question is, what do you do with that confusion? What do you do in the midst of that tension? And I think that is a very, very important question to ask. Because here's the temptation. The temptation is to think, well, you know what? Maybe all of this previous experience that I have of God was just some sort of emotional thing that I was conjuring up on my own. Maybe that I've just been talking myself into this the whole time or talking myself into believing in God when he was never there. I'm kidding myself. And you see this all over. Like This is a common response to that experience and you end up walking away from your faith. Here's the problem with that though. What you've done in that instance is to take those, those brutal feelings in the moment, your own felt perception of God's nearness, and to interpret them as the ultimate source of what is true and what's not. And I, I think for all of us on the surface, we should recognize the problem with that. It's a problem because I know my feelings are all over the place. They change from minute to minute at times. And, and, and here's the thing, I wanna be very careful here because I'm not saying that your feelings of God's absence or nearness are unimportant or meaningless. They are deeply important. And that, that this is the example that we have in this Psalm. But, but, but here's where I want us to, I wanna push us some. Your feelings are not the ultimate indicator of what is true and what is not. 
And so I mentioned that quote from uh, Dan McCartney's friend where he says, I feel like I'm inside a machine that's grinding me to bits while God is standing there feeding quarters into the machine to keep it going. Here's how he finishes that same quote. He says, but then it is a question of whether I believe God's word or believe my feelings. And I just wanna say this, the appeal of trying to follow your own feelings uh, is imaginary. Your feelings will have their way with you if they become what you look to as the ultimate source of truth. And what you see in this psalm is the psalmist no longer beholden to those feelings as this indicator of what is true about God and what is not. What you see instead is the psalmist clinging to who God is and who he's promised to be in his word. And if you notice, he prays that back to the Lord right in the middle of his anguish, right in the middle of his confusion. That's really what you see in the last section. So thirdly and finally, we pray God's promises. We pray God's promises. So even though his experience of God right now is that God is absent and he is silent, what he does still in the midst of that place is to pour his heart out to the Lord, begging God to help him. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And it's with this prayer in the middle of the psalm that his tone changes for the rest of it. So some other examples of this. Verse 24, he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And he goes from there and he worships the Lord in that place. I think what's so interesting about this is that uh, David is so confident in his prayer and so confident in his praise here that that some people think that, that, that this part of the psalm was written after God had rescued him. But, but here's what I think is actually happening. There is a sense in which he knows the Lord is going to do something, and it is not because of his feelings in that moment. It's because he knows who God has promised to be to his people. And there are echoes of God's promises throughout uh, the second half of the psalm. One is this. He addresses God as the Lord. And so if you see the way that it's printed there in your bulletin, it's in all caps. Anytime in the Old Testament you see the name LORD written in all caps, it refers to the divine name Yahweh. That is the the covenantal name that God has shown himself, that the way in which he's revealed himself to his people. And it's a reminder of all of God's covenant promises that he has made and that he has been faithful to throughout God's people's history. He also gives an echo here of this promise to Abraham. Verse 27, the families of the nation are the families that are gonna be blessed through Abraham's seed. And so here's the thing. David is so confident of the fact that God is going to keep his promises, that he's praying these promises, and he's singing these promises in worship, even when he can't see the way in which God is going to pull through on them. And I think that really raises what is the biggest question of all. And it is, how can I be sure that God is really going to keep these promises? How can I be sure that he hears my prayers when it feels like I'm shouting into the void? 
And it ultimately that he's actually going to do something about it. The answer to that question is because this psalm is ultimately about Jesus himself. That he was the one whose garments were divided, verse 18. He was the one who was mocked and derided, the one to whom others wagged their heads. He was the one whose hands and feet were pierced. He's the one who heard people yell out to him while he was hanging on the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And he was the one who in the anguish of his soul cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the unique thing about Jesus' cries from the cross. The unique thing about them is that God the Father really did forsake him in that moment. Jesus didn't just feel abandoned. He actually, objectively, was abandoned. And so as we sang earlier, the Father turns his face away. Why did that happen? Because in that moment, Jesus, the Son of God, bore the wrath and judgment do for our sin. And as that act of judgment was falling upon the Son, the Father turned his face away, and Jesus' cries, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says, for the first time and for the last, went unanswered. Here's what that means, though, if you are one who's put your faith in Jesus. It means, then, that because Jesus' cries of anguish went unanswered, that your cries of anguish will always, forever, and eternally be answered. It means that because Jesus was abandoned on the cross for you, that it is a cosmic impossibility that God would ever abandon you. And you see, that, that is ultimately why you can pray your anguish. You can pray that anguish and that confusion with confidence that God is actually gonna do something about it because in some sense, he already has. He did something by giving his very son for you and one day, because of that son's resurrection from the dead, that son will return and make everything new. And so you can cry out to the Lord. You can pour out your anguish before him and know that he hears you and that he will do something about it. That is the God who offers himself to you in Jesus. And the question is, will you receive him? Will you come to him? He invites you to. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the richness of your word, for the beauty of this psalm, for the anguish of this psalm. And Lord, we thank you all the more for your son, our Lord Jesus the one who prayed on the cross, crying out in anguish while he bore the judgment for our sin in our place. And so, Father, we pray uh, that we would come to you boldly, knowing that we will never be abandoned, that we will never be turned away because your son was abandoned and turned away for us. And so, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in that place and come to you boldly. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.